Hello, this is Justin Coleman, Senior Pastor at University UMC, and this is our podcast. I hope these messages engage your mind, touch your heart, and inspire you to serve God and your neighbor. Check us out online at universityumc.church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, this Sunday, we conclude our Not In It To Win It sermon series. This series, we've been talking about this intersection between politics and faith and what it means for the either division or unity of the church. And as we prepare to continue this conversation, please go with me to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and perhaps even in spite of me. And so let the humble words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So there's been a central question that we've asked during this sermon series. Can you disagree politically and love unconditionally? Can you disagree politically and love unconditionally? And then there's been another question that's, that's been present as well, and that's how can the church move beyond the divisions that often our political disunity create? And we've used a couple images. One image has been that of uh, the iPhone. I said, each of us is like the operating system of a smartphone. And ideally, our core operating system would be the Christian faith. And that what we put around that system, like a case on a phone, uh, would be something that is there that we could be uh, known by as well, but that's not the core of who we are. But I've also said that in reality, in so many cases, we make our core operating system something else. We make it our political affiliation. I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. Or we say, I'm a male, or I'm a female, or I'm gay, and I'm straight, or I'm black, and I'm white, or whatever it else it may be, those other identities all too easily form the central identity, and Christianity is moved to the, to the edges. It becomes the, the case that uh, ensconces the operating system, such that if you remove it, it doesn't make much of a difference. Well, it should actually be the opposite. Another image that we might use is to say that you generally move in the direction of whatever you're looking at. Generally move in the direction of whatever you're looking at. If you're driving, it's pretty important. That's why we're told keep our eyes on the road and not on other things. Because you tend to veer in the direction of whatever you're looking at. And what the life and witness of the church, unfortunately, today would reveal is that often we're looking in places other than Jesus. Because if all of us in the life of every church in all of its various forms were looking at Jesus, we would always be moving closer together than further apart. And so the, the sad truth of our life just may be that we're looking at so many of these other things that, that cause division and it moves us away from one another rather than closer to one another and may even move us away from Christ rather than closer to Christ. 
And it's easy to think about all of these um, different kinds of division. I, I named some of them. And in the, in the first week, I said, look, if we were to listen to the world, if we were to listen to the, the prevailing narratives of culture, they would say that various of us in this space really should not trust one another. That, uh, that I, as an African-American male, should look at much of the crowd and go, I don't know what to think about y'all. I need to be on my guard. And then it would say that you need to do the same thing. It would say that if, if, uh, if you're uh, a woman, you need to look at all the guys in here and go, I'm not sure. And then, you know, what our culture does is it particularly doubles down on you white, straight dudes. And really, we all need to just side-eye them, right? Because that's what the culture says. And then the culture says that if, if, if you're, you're, you're gay, you really need to look at all these folks who are straight and say, I don't know what to think about these folks. They really, I mean, they're out to harm me at every, at every turn. If you're, if you're old, these young folks are always messing up your way of life. And if you're young, oh my gosh, when will these folks move aside so I can do what I really want to do? Again, all of these prevailing messages of our culture that say we really should hold one another at arm's distance. We really cannot be trusting of one another. And certainly when it comes to politics, man, those Democrats are just ruining our country. They're destroying our society. Those Republicans are just, they're out to do harm. They are causing harm and injustice all across our society. You see, all of these narratives, and we bring all of that, all the weight of that, all of those stories, uh, all of that preaching of other sorts into this space, and we try to figure out how to do life together and determine that it's really quite hard to talk about anything that is beyond the surface level, to talk about anything that is meaningful. But it's the very testament to Christ and what Christ calls us to that should help us to overcome those prevailing narratives. Now, Lindsay talked to us last week about the commandment. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't just suggest that we love one another. Pastor Lindsay didn't say, hey, y'all, if you feel like it, love one another. Hey, y'all, on your good days, for the people who are most like you, love them. Is that what you said, Pastor Lindsay? No, I don't think that's what you said. I was listening. That is not what Pastor Lindsay said last week. Jesus not only encourages us, but Jesus knows what we need. Jesus says, I command you to love one another, just as I have loved you. It's not an option. It's central to who we are. It's central to our operating system. Now, this series is not about what side is right or, what, or what's true you know, from, from one side or another. This, side, this, this, this sermon series is about Jesus and following Jesus' commands in our life. And to apply what Jesus is encouraging us to apply as directed. 
So you've all received, or many of us have received, a medication of a certain kind, and in, in, in all the medication you may receive, it says to use as directed. Uh, whether it's prescribed or whether it's over-the-counter, it will say to use as directed. The CDC will tell us that one of the reasons that chronic illness is not always kept in check or people do not improve is because they are not using that which is given them as directed. If you don't use it, if you don't apply it as directed, it will not make you better. If you're giving something that you're supposed to use every day and you use it every other day, you're not going to get better. In fact, you might, you might get worse. If you use it once a week if, and you're supposed to use it daily, you're not going to get better. It's, it's likely to get worse. And it's the same thing as it relates to faith. If we use it haphazardly, if we, if we take this commandment to love haphazardly, we don't apply it as directed, well, it's likely not going to work. Paul will say in, in Ephesians 5, Therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Just as a, a dearly loved child will love the parent that loves them and, and vice versa, imitate God who dearly loves you. Live your life with love, Paul says, following the example of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Look, apply this as directed. Jesus will pray in this prayer that uh, Vaughn read for us earlier. If you look at John chapter 17, it's the longest prayer that Jesus prays in Scripture. And Jesus is essentially saying one thing over and over in various ways in this prayer. Here's part of it. I'm not praying only for them, meaning the disciples that were right in front of them. Then Jesus moves this prayer to you. Jesus says, I'm not only praying for them, but also those who believe in me because of their word. I pray that they will be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, I pray that they also will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. The oneness of the church, the way we live our collective witness makes the, the word of Christ believable in the world. As we divvy up, as we break up, as we insist on going to our corners and being in different places, as people see Christians fight against one another and fight in uncharitable ways without humility in the midst of culture, folks go, what? how do you expect me to believe this message that y'all all talk about that God is love and there is grace? Because I'm not seeing that love in you. I'm not seeing it in the way that you engage with people dis you disagree with. I don't see the love. I, I don't see the love when you are with other Christians that you disagree with. The words that you use, your posture, your body language, everything about your argument, I'm just not seeing the love. And so I just, I mean, it's just not very believable. So Jesus prays his prayer saying, if you, will, if you will be one, the world will come to know 
that God sent me into the world. I've given them the glory that you gave me, Jesus says, so that they can be one just as we are one. I'm in them and you are in me so that they will be made perfectly one. Then, then the world will know that you sent me and that you've loved them just as you love me. And Jesus keeps on going, Father, I want those you gave me to be with me where I am. Then they can see my glory, which you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, even the world didn't know you, but I've known you. And these believers know you sent me. I've made your name known to them. And they will continue to make it known so that your love for me will be in them and I myself will be in them. It's like Jesus keeps on saying the same thing over and over and over again. Let's be together. Let's be with one another as if in one another. So that the world will know this knowing language. So the world will know. And so that these people who are gathered will know your love. They'll know you. They'll know me. We'll all know one another. And then there's this language of love that connects all of what Jesus is saying in this prayer. And if you'd read the rest of the chapter, it's just an expansion on what I just read to you a moment ago. This is what makes the love that we share with one another every day, in every way, not as if it's an option, but as if it's, it's an imperative, is what makes the gospel message intelligible. The way we love one another is what makes the gospel message intelligible. You got to apply it as directed. Well, you say, look, applying it as directed is, is hard. Now, every week in this sermon series, after church, folks have said, Pastor, that's a great sermon. Pastor Justin, I love Lindsay's sermon. And, and every week, Someone has said this to me, Pastor Lindsay, they might have said this to you. I, I love this sermon series. We need this sermon series, but. <laughs> There's all, there is not, every, not in every case, but there has been a but in enough conversations. Where folks will say, but you know, these people make it really hard. Or, or what they do makes it, you know, there's, all, there's this but in there. And, and because we've been convinced, we've been so convinced by the preaching, the secular preaching of prevailing culture, that the kind of love that Jesus is talking about can only go so far. It's just impractical to love in the way that Jesus loves. Because there'll be too many people getting away with things. There's not going to be enough justice in the world. Well, let's just think about it in the way that, let's think about the witness of just a few communities that you've all heard of and that have been really complicated. So let me, let me start with 2006. You'll remember there was a shooting in an Amish school. 
Ten were injured. Five were killed. This is sweet, peaceful Amish community. And what some of you may remember is that the Amish community was quick to forgive their assailant. I mean, very quick. It's one of the first things that came out of the mouths of every parent, of every child that was injured or killed. And we said, I don't know what to think about that. I guess it's because, you know, they're Amish. Uh, and the Amish do weird things sometimes. I, don't, I just don't get it. But what the Amish would say is like, forgiveness, it's not, it's not that we've forgotten. We can't forget this. It's not like it hasn't impacted our life. But we deeply know the grace and love and forgiveness of God, and so we, we extend it because the only way to mend this situation and the harm that it has created is to forgive. And we shrugged our shoulders and said, okay, I guess it works for some people. Well, let's fast forward a few years. Let's go to 2015. 2015, Mother Emanuel Church, Charleston. They are in the midst of a Bible study in a church, in an African-American church. We've got Dylan Roof who comes in, and, and there's this racially motivated mass shooting. And we're all caught up in it. And then we see the trial unfold as he's there, and then Reverend Anthony Thomas, or excuse me, Thompson, looks at Dylan Ruth and offers a word of forgiveness. And some people go, that's Christian. That's what you ought to do. But then there's, there's been enough accumulated pain in our culture. And there's been enough of an insistence from our culture that the kind of ways that Christians talk about forgiveness don't work, that people said, that's just inappropriate. That's just one other instance where a black person is compelled to forgive a white assailant because that's been happening over and over and over again in our culture. And, and in ways, yes, that's true. But it's always true and will ever be true that forgiveness mends the world. The loving forgiveness of Christ mends the world. But it has become unbelievable for some of us because in our culture, we know well how to point out what's wrong. The cultural critics know well how to point out what's wrong, but we don't always collectively know how to heal. It's one of the challenges of our culture today is we know how to be a condemning culture. We do, we do not know very well how to be a healing culture. And the church is meant to be a healing culture. Let's fast forward just a little bit and I'm going to press to a close here. You'll remember Larry Nasser. Uh, this one who's supposed to be a trusted um, uh, doctor and who 
uh, in so many ways abused that trust with more than 260 female gymnasts across the years. And in his trial, 150 women got up and, and gave testimony of the violations Nasser done. And then Rachel Den Hollander, on the, on the, oh, she, she brought forward this, but then she was also the last to speak in the trial. She spoke for 40 minutes. And in the midst of it, she says, and uh, many clergy have used this, uh, this image that she lifted up. She says, she talks about how he brought a Bible in the early days of the trial saying, look, you ought to forgive me. And so many of us looked at it and said, that's inappropriate. No way. No way. But she brings this and says, how much is a little girl worth? She says, I submit to you that they are worth everything. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible, she's talking to Nasser here, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you've read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. And by his grace, I too choose to love this way. She goes on to say, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that's what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend it to you as well. Friends, this is the marrow of the gospel. She's not overlooking anything. She's not forgetting anything. She's not putting herself in the place of harm. But she is allowing the gospel of Christ in the best way she knows how to be her central operating system. And to say, and if you listen to her interviews since, that the way to mend her life and the way to mend the world and even the way to mend Nasser was through the loving forgiveness of Christ. She knows it and it's healing her and he must know it so it can heal him and we all must know it so that it can heal the world. Disagreement is unavoidable. Division, however, is a choice. Disagreement is how we grow, how we learn. God loves us in spite of the views that we have. 
God loves all of us in spite of the views that we have because all of our views are not perfect. And God calls us to love the exact same way. And dear friends, if you think this is hard, if you think this is impossible, this is why you need a God. (laughs) This is why you need a Savior. This is why we all need a Savior. This is the way of love that we are called to that mends all the divisions of the world. This is the way of love that we are called to that, it, that heals and restores. This is the way that we are called to that does away with all division. This is the way of Christ. Welcome to Christianity. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can visit us at universityumc.church where you can find services, events, and other ways you can get involved. Remember that we love you. We hope you have a great week. We hope the peace of Christ is with you. And we hope to see you soon.